Hi, my name is Lauren. The Old Testament reading is found in Jeremiah 9, 22-23. Tell your daughters and neighbors, the Lord says, The dead bodies of people will lie scattered everywhere, like manure scattered on a field. They will lie scattered on the ground like grain that has been cut down but not been gathered. The Lord says, Wise people should not boast that they are wise. Powerful people should not boast that they are powerful. Rich people should not boast that they are rich. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Ned. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. Now we do speak wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are perished. Instead, we speak the wisdom of God, hidden in a mystery, that God determined before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things that no eye has seen or ear has heard or mind imagined are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed these to us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For we among men, excuse me, for whom among men knows the things of man except that man's spirit within him. So too, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. And we speak about these things, not with words taught us by human wisdom, but with those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. The unbeliever does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is understood by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to advise him? But we have the mind of Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, my name is Mike. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 16, 21 through 25. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, (laughs) and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Daniel Wilson Grothy, and I'm 31, and I work at New Life. It's good to meet you all. Uh, I've been at New Life for nine years, and the reason I'm here, one of the reasons I'm here is because Glenn is in England this morning. He's working on his doctorate, and he has to go four times a year, and this is one of the four Sundays that he'll be gone. So he asked me to come speak. We're in a series on 1 Corinthians, and uh, we decided about four or five months ago as a, a preaching team that we would be studying through 1 Corinthians, and I was really excited about that. Because about two years ago, uh, Matthew Ayers and I took a class here in town at Fuller Theological Seminary, and it was just a 1 Corinthians class. And it was 10 weeks just on 1 Corinthians. And someone said to me, how could you possibly spend 10 weeks on 1 Corinthians? Like, what are you going to talk about? Like, 
Ten, that was a joke, okay? Um, I walked into the class and we had to purchase our books and there was a 1,600-page commentary on the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians written by this guy called Anthony Thistleton. And, and legend has it that Thistleton wrote this book and he only got a $7,000 advance for it. 1,600 pages, this big doorstop of a book. He spent his life on 1 Corinthians. And so, anyway, we got to get immersed in the book and I love this book and I'm very excited that we as a church are going to be looking at it and studying through it. And today I want you to imagine yourself as the great uh, Old Testament scholar Walter, Walter Brueggemann says. He says, I want you to imagine yourself anciently for the next 20 minutes. Imagine yourself anciently. Paul shows up in Corinth, maybe 50 AD, just after the Isthmian Games. It's kind of the Olympic Games. Every two years they would have it there on this isthmus called Corinth. World athletes coming in. It's a power hub. Paul shows up the next year in 50, and he says, hey, I got a, I got a word for you, Church of God in Corinth. When we read Church of God, it's, it's possible for us to think this really established, secure, great reputation group of a people in town. This is a, many people believe, 100 people gathered. This is 20 years, roughly, after Jesus ascended to the Father, so the story was just getting out. We think of church, I mean, we've got five, 600 people here this morning, it's incredible. Paul comes to a little, bitty, vulnerable group of people living in Corinth, saying they follow Jesus Christ in a time when it wasn't cool to say you follow Jesus Christ. In fact, it would get you kicked out of the synagogue. It would get you run off. It would get you in trouble. And Paul says, hey, 100 people, who follow Jesus. I've got a word for you. This is to the church of God in Corinth. Corinth was new money. All of Rome's military officers who had retired, Rome was wise. Their leadership said, hey, we got this outpost over there. It used to be something, but it got torn down in a war about 100 years ago. So what we'll do is we'll give you a plot of ground with your name on it. It's yours. It's free. All you have to do is move to Corinth and rebuild the city for us. So it's a great deal. A Roman military officer, they know that they're loyal to the empire. They know that they're disciplined. They know that they know how to work and build. So they send them over, give them free ground, but in return they get a free city built up and it's beautiful and there's new money. It's this geographical pivot. If you want to get to Rome, you go through Corinth and hang a left, go west. You're in Rome. If you want to go to Achaia or Macedonia, just right above Corinth. If you want to go over to Asia, over here, you're going to go to the east. If you want to go down to Peloponnese, it's right south. Corinth is this geographical pivot, so the trade routes go through there. The winds were so bad down south of Corinth, there's this place called Cape Malia. And the winds, the trade winds would come through there, and, and the sailors had this saying that, see Cape Malia twice and you're dead. So what did they do? They cut this channel out of the middle of this four-mile-wide isthmus called Corinth so that they could go up through there and stay away from the winds and sneak through Corinth to get out to Rome or to get back to the east. Corinth, you had to go through Corinth. You couldn't stay away from this place, and Paul knows this. Paul goes there to tell this story, to, to build up a church that's little, that's weak, that's fledgling, that's new. It's just now bursting forth. And he says, I want to see that you're well in your infancy. 
But he also goes there knowing that people are going to come through and take this to the four winds of the world, that this story is going to be proclaimed all over the place. New money, Roman military retirement, greatest athletes in the world, educated, disciplined. Cicero said that Corinth was the light of all Greece. This was the place to be. It was also very sexualized, as people would have to travel through there. You got your sailors coming through, you got business people traveling through, and so, hey, they, they, you might have heard them say, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was Vegas before Vegas was Vegas. Very sexualized. And one day, Paul comes to town, and he's got a message for them, and he knows they're spiritual people. He'd walked around, seen all the temples up there on Acrocorinth, the mountain, the Pikes Peak in the back of the city, just gorgeous. They got Pikes Peak and they've got an ocean. This is a beautiful place. They got the temple of Aphrodite up there and some speculate up to a thousand prostitutes up there. So as you go worship, you would consummate and it's just filthy. And Paul knows that these people are very spiritual, but he says, I want to redefine spirituality for you. I want to actually name it. I want to put some teeth to this term. I want to tell you what it looks like to be spiritual. Nine times in these 16 verses, he uses the word spirit or spiritual. And he makes this shocking claim to these hundred people. Remember, we're the hundred people gathered in Corinth on a Sunday morning. He shows up and says, "Uh, you know what's going on in the mind of God. You have all the access you could ever want. You just do have the mind of Christ. You have received the mind of Christ. What do you... Come on, Paul. You know we've been on the run. You know that we can't hardly pay our bills. You know that we don't look good in this city of 250,000 people. Our little 100 of us, we're fools to them. Don't mess with us. Don't tell us that we've got God's mind on the situation. You know how hard it is, Paul. And he says, you have received the mind of Christ. God has let you in on what he thinks. The stakes are high here, Paul. You know that I'm putting my kids at risk just to be here. So I'm okay to be here, but please don't play with my emotions. Don't tell me something that's not true if it's not true. Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. And then they start looking around all the orators that come through Corinth because it's a geographical pivot. All these great rhetoricians who know how to speak and who know how to hold an audience captive and they can just say it. And they look around Paul and he says, I come to you in fear and in trembling, not with wise and persuasive words, but I come to preach a man hanging on a cross. If you were a great orator in the day, you would have a patron, someone who would take you into their house and pay your bills. It was basically a research fellowship. And so all the rhetoricians would go around and they would perform for people and all the rich people who could be the possible patron would be sitting there going, which one's the best? Okay, I'll put you on my payroll. Come into my house. And they recognize, Paul says, look, I'm not coming to be like that. I I could ask for your support, but I won't. I'm going to work in the shop. While I'm with you for 18 months, I'm going to be a leather worker. I'm going to work with my own hands. I'm going to mind my own business. I'm going to show you that this message is true. And I'm not here to take advantage of you like all of the other orators that are coming through on the circuit. I'm going to live a different way among you. If this isn't true, this story, that you have the mind of Christ, 
time's wasting. These people could be making idols to sell in Aphrodite's temple. These people could be selling cattle that is going to be sacrificed to the gods. There's a great business in this town for spirituality. But by them holding to Jesus, by by them staying true to this story, it means they're leaving money on the table. So when Paul comes and says, you actually now have the mind of Christ, they're a little bit on edge. They're a little bit wondering, are you here to play with our emotions? Are you here to sell us something? But Paul goes on to insist, you do have the mind of Christ. Now, for some of them, this would have been an issue because Isaiah previously, about 800 years previous, said, hey, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart has even begun to perceive what God is up to. You just, who can know the mind of the Lord, Isaiah said it. And Paul shows up in Romans eleven thirty three, and he has this big, great doxological exclamation point. He goes, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths. You can't even trace them out. Who can know the mind of the Lord and who can instruct him and who could ever give to God that God should repay him for from God and through him and to him are all things and to him be the glory. So Paul knows what Isaiah is talking about, the, the just untraceable paths of God. But then Paul says something else. You have the mind of Christ. Paul slightly tweaked what Isaiah said. He said, yes, Isaiah said what he said 800 years ago and God was speaking and God was at work and God was leading and and there was this great crescendo in our story at about 800 BC when Isaiah came on the scene. Yes, but there's more to it now. Let me tell you, let me interpret Isaiah for you. Let me tell you what he meant. 1 Corinthians 2.9. The things that no eye has seen. The things that no ear has has heard the things that no mind has ever imagined. Those are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. God revealed these to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Paul screams, Apocalypse! Right now! Revelation! That's the word that he uses in the Greek. Apocalypse. Something has happened. God has pulled back the curtain. God has disclosed himself. He's unveiled himself. He's laid himself bare before us. We actually can know those things that Isaiah said. Who can know? Well, we can know because the Spirit has now come to search the deep things of God and to give them to us. Paul says, we find good gifts. We find... God's kindness. We find God's interest in us. Elsewhere he said, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. It's by grace we've been saved. Paul says, look, you can discern God in all the beauty of holiness. Paul says, look, all that God has done to lead you to this point, he's not going to forsake you. Paul Paul says he's going to lead you forward. Every time you find a job and you're blessed, God's gracious gift. Every time you have a baby and you're blessed, God's gracious gift. Every time you go into the city and you're shown favor, God's gracious gift. Every time you pay off your mode of transportation or you get rid of your business line of credit, you're blessed and I'm going to send you out there and God has good gifts. This is what Paul is saying. The Spirit 
reveals to us. He gives us good gifts. But Paul gives us a warning. Lest we misunderstand this place of great privilege as insiders on the mind of God, Paul gives us a warning. He says, you won't be powerful in the way that the world understands power. You won't be wise in the way that wisdom is defined by all those great orators that run around here tickling your ears and emptying your wallets on their message. You won't be wise in the way that the world understands wisdom. And he essentially asks them, can you take that? Can you live in that tension, not being celebrated by the world? Not being one of Corinth's greatest You're the greatest, but they won't know it. You have the greatest privilege. You've been let in on a secret, but it's going to look like weakness and foolishness, and you're going to be despised. Can you take that? Can you live in that space? The hundred of us listening to Paul, just 18 years after Jesus left, in a town of 250,000 power players and wise and established and wealthy people, we might be a little apprehensive. We might sit on the edge of our seat and question. We might get in the car and drive home from church and say, do you buy that? Today, I can hear Paul talking to us. I can hear the Spirit of God walking through the aisles making an announcement, you do have the mind of Christ. You do know what it looks like to live. You do have wisdom. You've been let, on, you've been let in the greatest secret that's been hidden before the foundations of the world that God always intended to reveal to his people. And here it is right now in Corinth. You're part of the story Here it is right now in Colorado Springs. You're part of this story. With your little children playing back here in Children's Church, they're part of this story. They've been let in on the mind of Christ. But do we believe it? In a world that seems slipping away, can we hear this word with ears of faith? Can we have eyes to see and ears to hear? Today I want to make a few observations about the mind of Christ as I understand it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first observation is this. To have the mind of Christ is to learn to reinterpret weakness. To have the mind of Christ is to learn to reinterpret weakness. Paul in Philippians 2 says to them, Hey, here's what Jesus looks like. And I want you to have this mind in you, people, that also was in Christ who being very God, did not consider his godness as something to exploit. He didn't have to fight for his own rights. He didn't demand that they treat him as he was. Instead, he laid down his life. He became a servant. He took on flesh. He became became human. And he was mocked and made fun of, and yet he stayed obedient unto death. Even death on the cross And Paul says to the saints in Philippi, let that mind be in you. Like actually work for it, like receive it, like take that mind, receive that mind from Jesus and live with that, the mind 
of a servant. To have the mind of Christ is to learn to enter into deep humility, I want to suggest. To have the mind of Christ is to sometimes look foolish in an age that's passing away or to make decisions that sometimes fly in the face of the prevailing wisdom. And this one's difficult for me. To have the mind of Christ is to have the mentality amended within me that says my life must always be about public victory, about winning. To have the mind of Christ is to enter into deep humility and to reinterpret weakness. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma at 101st and Memorial, and my next-door neighbor was Brian. And Brian's six months younger than me, and as a young kid, I didn't know how to say it. I, I just knew Brian was awesome, and, and Brian had something that was different. And I, my parents just, you know, don't say anything. Just, he's, just don't put your foot in your mouth, son. Don't embarrass yourself. And as I grew older, I, I understood that Brian had a syndrome that his heart pumped double time. And so what it was telling his body is, you're basically twice the age that you are. His heart was having to labor so fast and sending blood all over his body, and so he looked double my age. And he had a fascination, it's always, he, he had a fascination with fans, ceiling fans. He just would fixate on ceiling fans, and then one day he drove through a car wash, and he was wowed, oh my gosh, what is this? Stuff is just spinning everywhere. And Brian started studying car washes and buying books and reading up and going and, and, and saying, hey, can you tell me about your car wash? Can you take me in there and show me the mechanics of it? And Brian became an expert in car washes. <laughs> to the point where he went to his first national car wash convention in Vegas. <laughs> I didn't know they had such a thing. But Brian, being the researcher that he is, got online, figured it out, went to Vegas, and they fell in love with him there. They had to put him in a wheelchair. He could walk, but he was unsteady on his feet and, and a little overwhelmed with all the people. So they put him in a wheelchair, and they'd have to make way for Brian. And as Brian would go around, he'd say, Hi, guys. I love you. I love you. I've never seen these people. Guess what? Jesus loves you too. Hey, come here. What, what's your name? Can I pray for you? People just break down. They're in Vegas for a car wash convention. <laughs> <laughs> and they meet Jesus. Jesus comes to them in the form of Brian Campbell. And Brian, to this day, will still call me. I haven't lived in Tulsa for nine years. He still lives in the same house right there. He's 31 years old. He'll call me and say, Hey, Daniel, it's Brian. How can I pray for you? How are your babies? He still lives with his parents. He'll always live with his parents. His parents love him. His little brother loves him. This family knows what it is to live in weakness and to let Jesus fill up weakness and to let Jesus take weakness and make it strength. To live with the mind of Christ is to reinterpret weakness. 
1 Corinthians 1.27. You looked at it last week. But Paul says, isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretension of the somebodies. This is the way God works. Second observation that I want to make is that to have the mind of Christ is to grow into what God has already said. What do you mean, Daniel? 21 months ago, went to the hospital. Lisa was past her time. She was ready to have a baby, to give birth to our third human. And we go, and she's pacing, and she's doing great. She's not one of those. She doesn't like to start yelling. Or she just gets real quiet and real focused. And she played college sports, so she knows how to just, you know. And so she's hooked up to the IV, and she's walking. The, and I know not to say anything. Just shut up and do whatever she says. And we finally... It, it, She's just working hard, and the, the nurse thought she would be at a four or a five, and the nurse comes in, and she goes, you're at a 10. Oh, my goodness, you're ha- sit down, like you're having the baby. So we're wondering if the doctor's going to get there, and the doctor comes in, who's a friend of mine, he goes to New Life, and we had already discussed, I, I was able to deliver our second child, Wilson, and he said, you can deliver this, this guy, Wakely, and so I was ready, and I said, I'll be right back. I'll get your gloves on. He said, there's not time. Get over here right now. I was like, yes, sir. So I get in my place and Wakely comes and I catch him and I wrap him in swaddling clothes and I lie him on his mother. Just like, there, there you go. Lay him on his mother. My bad, all you English teachers. And he's on Lisa's chest and we're just, oh, we, he's here. Wakely Daniel Grothy. And I took him from Lisa and they put him under the little hot lamps, you know, like the incubator where they warm old food, you know, that kind of a thing. (laughs) And so he's he's under the warm old food warmers and 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 Lisa's over there and and the nurse comes over to clean him up and I'm just leaning over him like it's my guy. Hey Wakely. I love you. Like, I'm crazy about you. Like, I've been praying for you my whole life. And my parents were praying for you before I came. And you don't know how much of a gift you are. But I'm going to tell you how much of a gift you are. I'm going to spend my life That first day, Wakely didn't know what I meant when I said, I love you. He had no clue. But Lisa and I kept telling him, we love you. He's three months old. We love you. You're awesome. You're a man of integrity. (laughs) He's like... You got any milk? 
<laughs> no, son, I'm not lactating. <laughs> Here's your mother. I love you. You're a sweetheart. You're a favorite. And Wilson is too. And Lillian is too. And you guys are our favorites. And we're going to spend our lives telling you how much we love you and serving you and blessing you. He's nine months old. Wakely, we love you. And he's crawling around. And he finally gets up at 11. Wakely, we love you. Last night, we were on a hike over in Peregrine at uh, Mount St. Francis, the Catholic retreat center over there. It's beautiful. And the five of us are walking around and climbing into these rocks up in the, up in the stuff. Just lost. <laughs> gone. No cell phones. I mean, did it even happen? If we didn't have a cell phone, did it really happen? Like we didn't take a picture? Like... And I said to Wakely, it, the two big kids were up just climbing all over stuff and it's Lisa holding Wakely's hand and I'm at the back as we're climbing up and I said, hey Wakely, I love you. He turned around. He said, I love you. (laughs) Just like that. And I knew exactly what he meant. And he knew what he meant. At 21 months old, he finally is getting a grasp on the concept of I love you. You know what's What's happened, it's taken 21 months for him to hear his way into understanding what I love you means. 21 months, repetition, I love you, I love you. It didn't mean anything for a long time, but now he's starting to get it. The light is coming on and he's able to respond and he's starting to say his way into understanding what I love you means. It's the same with us and the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, yes, we have received it. It is our inheritance, says Paul. This is God's gracious activity toward us. We didn't initiate this. God's gift to us is the mind of Christ. It's our gift, but it's also our vocation. It's the thing that we have been pulled into. It's the thing that now we get to steward. It's the thing that we get to obsess over now. It's the thing that we get to chase after and say, what does it mean to have your mind? What does it mean when you say to me, you love me? What does it mean to me when you say to me that I'm yours and my inheritance is at your table? I'm your son. I'm your daughter. What does it mean? Just like Wakely has learned what I love you means by hearing it for 21 months, so too we grow in the mind of Christ by hearing his words over us time and time and time again. You can never underestimate these beautiful, sacred words that have been entrusted to us. And the psalmist said, I will hide them in my heart. These will be my meditation day and night. I'm going I'm to hover over these words. The psalmist used the word shamar, which is to watch over. I'm just going to shamar. I'm going to watch over these words. I'm never going to let them get out of my sight. I'm never going to walk away from them. These are my words, and they are the words that teach me who I am. And these are the words that I speak back to you and to the world. To have the mind of Christ is to grow into what God constantly is saying about us. Today I have good news for all of us, the hundred of us here in Corinth. The little group of people that call on the name of Jesus in Colorado Springs, there's good news. Those that enter into the weakness of Christ crucified will also enter into the jubilation of Christ glorified. 
Last week, Glenn preached on the scandal of the cross, and it makes no sense in a world of power and wisdom that's a different definition. The cross is our message, and those of us who enter into the weakness of the cross, those of us who will have weakness reinterpreted for us, those of us who will enter into the deep humility, we will also share in the great jubilation of Christ's glorification. This is the trajectory that we're on. Paul starts with a cross message and he ends with a message in 1 Corinthians 15 on resurrection. This is the road we're walking from a cross to a resurrection. Today I can hear Paul say to us, don't you ever forget that you've been let in on the mind of God. Don't you ever forget that that's your inheritance and that that's how you live. You do have the mind of Christ. The Spirit searches and takes us deep into the mind of God. Today, I want us to prepare our hearts before we come to the table of the Lord to receive the body and the blood of Jesus. I want to ask you a couple questions of reflection. The first is this. What spot in your life might the Spirit be teaching you to reinterpret weakness? Where is your life pinched? Where is your life vulnerable? And what might the Spirit be teaching you to learn about this weakness that is actually strength? What situation might the Spirit be calling you to enter into with deep humility? Maybe it's like the Campbells, my neighbors, taking care of Brian for the rest of his life. That's the situation that the Spirit of God has called them into, to enter into with deep humility, and they have found joy and strength there. What situation is the Spirit of God calling you into to come in with a deep humility? And then the last is, where is the Spirit inviting you to celebrate good gifts? See, this is not just a heavy message of cross, 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 and it's never going to be joyful and it's never going to be... No, when you do flourish, when you do abound, when you do walk in the inheritance that God has given you, when life does work, when the children are acting right, when your health is well, when all is lined up and the stars have aligned and you're blessed, are you rejoicing? Are you thankful? Have you learned to identify a gift? Because Paul says that the Spirit of God is the one who plunges deep into the heart of God to show us what gifts are, what gifts He's given us. Today, as we come to the table of the Lord, I don't think there's a better way to respond to this Jesus Christ whose mind we now have. We come down, Philippians chapter 2, as you come down, I want you to be thinking about Paul. He says, let this mind be in you that also was in Christ. He laid himself down. He was humble. He became obedient unto death. He submitted himself to weakness and let God turn it into strength. Paul says, because of Jesus' obedience, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As we come down front to receive the body and the blood, we're coming saying, God, let this mind be in me. 
God, teach me how to think like Jesus Christ. Teach me how to receive the life that you've given me with humility and with an understanding of what true strength is. True strength is a broken body and shed blood and we come to receive it today from the Master. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you're the God who shows up in places that seem overlooked. You're a God who shows up to a people who have been disenfranchised. And you're a God who not only tells us about who you are, you're a God who pulls us deep into the life of who you are. You're a God who implants in us your very mind, the mind of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be a people who live in the possession of the mind of Christ, who live being possessed by the mind of Christ. Would you take us over, Lord, and teach us who we are in you, Teach us who you are in us and help us to leave this place, Lord, reinterpreting weakness and seeing the Brians of the world and seeing Jesus Christ in them and seeing the difficult situations of the world and seeing Christ's power being made perfect in them. Leaving here as a people of jubilation, of joy, of thanksgiving, of peace because we have the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.